introduction, Miles. So the title of my presentation today is Ideas Die Hard, the Development of Justice for Victims at the International Criminal Court. And the starting point for this paper was what I found to be a contradiction between the literature on the victims' engagement of the ICC on the one hand and the situation that I found myself when I went to the court to do research and when I then went to Kenya and Uganda to observe the ICC's work in the field. Because on the one hand, the critical literature on this topic constantly emphasizes that one of the main problems with the ICC's victims' engagement is that the practitioners of the ICC just don't get the complexity of victimhood. So while the court is constantly rhetorically using the idea of bringing, uh, bringing justice to innocent victims, we are here for the victims, in reality, in practice, the ICC understands and listens to victims only through very narrow and crude legal categories. And this means that the majority of victims and the majority of victims' voices are shut out of the process. On the other hand, when I came myself to the court to do research, I found that in many of my interviews, but also in more informal discussions with practitioners at the court, many of these people expressed rather complex ideas of victimhood and justice for victims. And when I then went to Kenya this summer to observe uh, the practice of the victim's lawyer in the field, but also what the court's field staff is up to, um, I found that some of these more complex ideas, some of them, um, also translated into the, into the way the court operates into the in the field. And this kind of contradiction, this kind of paradox, um, led me to ask the following research question. How is victimhood and justice for victims understood and used by the different actors of the International Criminal Court? And my paper today tries to provide some preliminary answers to that question. I will first provide you a bit of background on the ICC's victims mandate. I will then briefly introduce my theoretical framework and on that basis challenge the critical literature on the ICC's victims' engagement. And finally, I will show you different ways in which the idea of complex victimhood is used at the court. Um, so it's often said that uh, the victims' regime of the ICC, its principles of participation reparations, are one of the most innovative features of the court. And indeed, the ICC is the first international criminal justice institution that provides victims with rather extensive rights to participate in the legal proceedings and to receive reparations. And at the heart of the ICC's um, victim participation mandate is Article 68.3 um, of the Rome Statute. Where the personal interests of the victims are affected, the court shall permit their views and concerns to be presented and considered at stages of the proceedings determined to be appropriate by the court and in a manner which is not prejudicial to or inconsistent with the rights of the accused to a fair and impartial trial. And in practice, this means that victims at the ICC uh, can, through their legal representatives, they can um, attend the proceedings, they can have access to the full case index, they can submit evidence, they can examine witnesses, and they can challenge the admissibility of evidence. But none of these rights are unconditional. They all depend on the decision of the respective chamber. And, um, and the ICC also has, um, has a mandate to um, develop principles of reparations. 
and it can make reparation orders against convicted perpetrators. And the Rome Statute of the Court has for this purposes set up the Trust Fund for Victims, which has two mandates. First, to implement the reparation orders of the court, and second, to um, distribute assistance to victims. And for these purposes, the, 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 the trust fund can, can use the voluntary contributions by states and by non-state um, actors. And this brings me to my theoretical framework. Um, today, I want to analyze ideas of victimhood and justice for victims at the ICC by using the concept of interactional justice making, which I developed for my research because I found that much of the literature on international criminal justice is based on the assumption that the concept of justice is very stable. So ideas about justice, they either are a product of culture or of profession or of discipline or of personal belief, but no matter where these ideas about justice are coming from, once they're there, the concept of justice is very absolute and very fixed. And interactional justice making, my concept, uh, makes the claim that the meaning of justice at the ICC is intersubjectively constituted. And this means that the meaning of justice is produced through the social discourses and practices of the people who work there, of the ICC um, practitioners. And interactional justice is based on the assumption that people actually rarely have very fixed theories or concepts of justice. And the ICC itself does not provide any legal definition or any policy definition of justice. And the implication is that the meaning of justice at the court is very much in flux. And so the idea is that uh, the meaning of justice at the ICC can be shifted and shaped through the type of everyday practices and community communicative encounters of the people that work there. And um, so you can see uh, legal theorists wouldn't be happy about this. It's a very sort of practice-based, very um, empirical concept of justice, which is going to help us to sort of put more analytical light on the empirical process of justice-making that is going on at the court, at least that's my, my claim. And, um, and we will look further how ideas of justice and practices of justice, how they influence each other in this process of justice-making. And with this theoretical framework in mind, I now want to turn to the literature on the ICC's victims' engagement. And I want to challenge the critical scholarship on the ICC's victims' engagement. And I think it's fair to say that while at the beginning there was a lot of enthusiasm about the ICC's victims' mandate, victims' rights to participation, victims' rights to, to reparation, everyone was very excited about this. I think it's fair to say that after more than a decade of operations, this enthusiasm has pretty much turned into disillusionment. And there are very different types of critiques voiced by scholars, voiced by NGOs, voiced uh, by lawyers. But I want to, to focus, in this particular paper, I want to focus on one strand of the literature which I think is particularly important, and that's the critical scholarship. And um, the, the, the argument among critical scholars is that the, the problems with the ICC's victims' engagement, the reason for all this disillusionment, is that the concept and the practice of justice for victims at the court is rather blunt. And I already tried to allude that a bit, in, I already tried to explain it a bit in the introduction. So conceptually, the court uses very simplified images of innocent victims and, and evil perpetrators, and they often have not that much to do, actually, with the very fraught realities of conflict 
in many of the ICC situation countries. So you often find the prosecutor saying, we are here for innocent victims, we are bringing justice to innocent victims, and often this is based on a rather black-white painting of the conflict in situation countries where the victims can always be grafted as a mirror image, as the innocent mirror image of the criminal, as the helpless mirror image of international actors who must act in its name, as the passive mirror image of an international community that is discursively constituted to act on its behalf. And the practice, the practice uh, of uh, victimhood at the ICC is also not exactly fine-tuned. Uh, as, as, as I will show to you, only very few victims will ever be recognized by the court, and, and those who are recognized, they usually find their opportunities to express their views and concerns very limited. And the reason is that victim participation at the court is becoming more and more collective. And collect so that, in a sense, that um, big groups of victims are represented by one lawyer. So you have hundreds and sometimes even thousands of victims that are represented by one lawyer. And the assumption, of course, is that uh, victims have sufficiently similar interests that you can actually have one lawyer. And this is not always the case. So, for example, the victim's lawyer in the first Kenyan case against Hutu and Sang, um, he has argued that he has big problems representing his victims uh, because they often have diametrically opposed views on things. And very important in this context is the situation, is the, is the distinction between situation and case victims. So, for example, Kenya is one situation country of the court, and situation victims are all those victims who have been victimized by the post-election violence in Kenya in 2007 and 2008. Case victims, on the other hand, are only those victims that have been victimized by the very particular charges that the prosecutor has brought against the accused in the two Kenyan cases. And only case victims have rights to participate in the proceedings and to receive reparations. And I want to give you an example of the type of problems this can, can lead to. Um, this is a quote by one of the victim's lawyers who I accompanied in Kenya on his, uh, on his missions to, to meet victims, to explain them the court proceedings, and also to register them for participation. And this is, this is the comment he, ma he made. One of my field staff was talking to this woman. She had been raped six times, house burned down, extremely egregious crimes. And then my field staff said, what day was that? And the woman said, it was on the 6th of January 2008. And my field assistant said, oh my God, I wish she would just say 26th of January. Because 26th of January is within the temporal scope of the charges, but 6th of January is outside. And on the same day, I spoke to a man and I said, did you lose any family? No, no. Was your house burned down? No, no. Then he said, but they did take a hundred lots of bread from me. Now this falls within the scope of the charges. So this man was not particularly complaining about his condition in life, but he becomes a victim. And the lady who was raped six times on the wrong day is not a victim. And I think this illustrates pretty well how sort of the procedural ideas of justice at the ICC can clash with our substantive ideas of what justice means in a particular context or who the more deserving victim is in this particular example. Um, but I, and, and while I think there's a lot of merit to uh, the critical narrative of the ICC's victims' engagement, which I just tried to illustrate to you a bit, 
Um, I think it can be misleading because it, it portrays the court as an overly homogenous actor that uses one idea of victimhood, namely innocent victims, for one purpose, namely to expand and legitimate its international justice business. And you find it a lot in the critical literature. You always find expressions like, the court's mission is to do this or that, or the court's agenda is this, or the court is trying to do that. And this is, of course, all based on the assumption that the court is a very unitary and coherent actor. And, and I think this is, this is very misleading. Um, at least from my own fieldwork, both in The Hague but also in Kenya, a very different picture of the court emerged, namely the picture of a rather divided institution where, where you find different conflicting and even contradictory ideas and practices on justice for victims. That's the slide. <laughs> um, and I want to make, I want to kind of, I want to kind of uh, flesh this argument out a bit further. Um, so I want to now make, um, and I said I want to demonstrate two things. I first want to, sh I first want to show to you that ideas about victimhood and justice for victims are more complex, are more diverse in the internal discourse and documentation of the court. And I then want to show to you how these more complex ideas are used by the different actors of the court and how they influence the justice practices of the court in more unexpected ways. And um, my first critique of the critical scholarship is more of a methodological point because I think that critical scholars rely too much on the external representation of the court because as any institution, the court produces sort of more of an internal discourse on in and internal documentation which has more of an internal audience in mind. So I think most of the legal filings and policy documents uh, the court producers have an internal audience in mind, other practitioners, for example. But the court also um, produces sort of more external documentation, external discourse, which has more of an external audience in mind. And I'm thinking here of press releases, very obviously, but also the type of speeches that um, the, the ICC officials um, make in diplomatic fora, and maybe also trial opening and closing statements. And of course, I realize this distinction between internal and external discourse is fussy. Like, don't. <laughs> uh, but I do think that there is some merit to it. And and part of my fieldwork was about getting a better sense of this internal discourse and, and this internal documentation because I think this has been neglected in, literature, in the literature. And for this purpose, uh, my main source of data is interviews. Interviews with what I call justice stakeholders of the courts. And I, what I mean by that are ICC officials, so people who work at the court, um, both in The Hague but also in the field, so outreach staff and other type of staff. Then I also include civil society, but only those who work very closely with the court, who are very much associated with the court. And I also include intermediaries, and intermediaries are a bit of a funny category because these, these are often individuals, very often also victims actually, um, who work on behalf of the court without having an, a sort of a formal association. And I also studied a lot the policy documents and legal filings of the court regarding victims' issues. And what emerges from this internal discourse and internal documentation is a much more complex idea of justice for victims. And I will <coughs> illustrate this first um, with the example of the Lubanga case. 
Um, the Lubanga case, in Lubanga case, the prosecutor of the ICC charged Thomas Lubanga, who is a militia leader in the DRC, in the Democratic Republic, he charged, uh, he charged, he charged um, him with, um, with the, the, the crime of child conscription. And the prosecutor, it's true, he relied a lot on this idea that we have the innocent victims here, the children, the, the child soldiers that were deprived of their childhood, and then we have this evil, this evil individual, this evil Thomas Dubanga. Uh, and, um, but actually, if you look more carefully at the internal documentation, uh, the court had big problems with this case, many problems, but one of the problems was that uh, the, the child soldiers that the court recognized as victims were not recognized as such uh, by their communities in the Democratic Republic of Congo. So they were either seen as voluntary fighters who were defending their community, or they were seen as, as perpetrators themselves, of course, child soldiers, uh, who perpetrated egregious crimes themselves. And, uh, the and this, this really haunted the court, and um, during the reparation proceedings, the registry of the court gave the following advice to the chamber to kind of deal with this, this kind of misfit, this kind of disconnect between who the court recognizes as victims and who are recognized as victims um, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. So the registry um, advised the chamber as follows. Direct victims, so these are the child soldiers, may be perceived as offenders in their community. Inadvised reparation orders may result in ostracization of the child soldiers, especially if excluded victims, so those who were victimized by child soldiers, are left with the perception that those they consider to be offenders have been rewarded by the court's reparation arrangements. And I also want to present you some interview evidence, some quotes from, I mean, I know this is very, it's just very few, very few um, examples here, but just to give you a sense of the different ways in which the idea of justice for victims is complex at the court. And this is a, this is, um, a quote by a legal officer at the victim participation reparation section. And when I asked him what justice for victims means, he re replied as follows. Everything when it comes to the ICC is contextual. There are so many different backgrounds. For instance, my office mate is the focal point for the Central African Republic. He tells me about his experiences there, going and meet with people and have to explain what a court is, what a lawyer is. And I have meetings in Kenya where people are waving the Rome statute and ask, you know, I really can't get my mind around what's the difference between <laughs> Article 79 and Article 75. It is just night and day. You cannot compare concepts of justice between two societies that are so different. So what comes out of this quote, I think, is the idea that the question, in a sense, whether it is possible to come with one concept of justice to so many different countries with, with very different um, conflicts, very different levels of literacy, all, all sorts of things. And this is a quote by a former judge at the court, uh, and she said, our notions of judicial justice are incomprehensible for those who are unable to survive without a permanent place to live in, without enough money to take care of their family's basic needs, and without full recognition of the atrocities committed against them. And it's a different idea of, of justice for victims here, where, you, where she kind of problematizes a potential disconnect between sort of a Western concept of justice, kind of criminal court concept of justice, and the lived realities and justice ideas and needs of, of victims. 
And this quote comes from an ICC investigator of, at the office of the prosecutor. And while she, in a sense, while she um, expresses a more traditional idea of what justice means in the context of criminal courts, she also allows for subjective variations within the court. She says, I think by justice for victims, we mean punitive justice, that perpetrators, those who bear the greatest responsibility of crimes, should be punished for the commission of crimes. In short, that victims who have suffered should get a sense of justice, that those who violate their rights have been punished. But the concept of justice is wide. What justice might mean for me is different from what justice might mean for the person on my right and on my left. And this then leads me to the obvious question, does it really matter? Does it really matter that these people tell me maybe they just wanted to please me, who knows? Does complexity matter? And if so, how? Do these complex ideas of victimhood do they influence the justice practices of the court? And if so, how? And I will argue here that complexity matters because practitioners use. They use the idea of complex victimhood to promote diverse institutional interests and ideologies. Uh, so while the critical discourse argues that there's one idea of victimhood and it's used for one purpose, my argument is we have different actors here. They use different ideas of victimhood, often complex victimhood, for very different purposes. And I will illustrate this with the example of the ICC's mandate for victim participation. Uh, because it has been now observed for a while in the, in, the, in the literature that there has been a gradual backpedaling on ICC's victims' rights to participation, procedural courtroom rights, in the first decade of the court's operation. And this is an, taken as indicative of the fact that the judges don't understand the complexity of victimhood, they don't understand that justice for victims means a bit more than bringing the perpetrator to justice. But actually, um, if you look more carefully at the way the judges and also the, the prosecutors argue, and I use the term here judicial staff, and I, think it, I know it's a bit clumsy, but uh, I think you get what I mean. Uh, so I think what's actually happening that is that rather than ignoring or simplifying victimhood, many of the judges and also the prosecutors, they use the idea of complex victimhood precisely to disengage from victims, precisely to water down victims' procedural rights in a courtroom. And this is a quote from a former ICC senior trial attorney um, who said, it is logical that ICC prosecutions will remain extremely narrow in scope in relation to the underlying conflicts, criminality, and victimization. And therefore, that victims may continue to find participation in ICC proceedings a blunt instrument for fully vindicating their interests. And on that basis, she suggested that victim participation better be cut a bit in the courtroom. And uh, this is a quote uh, by Judge Hans-Peter Cowell, um, who I interviewed um, in The Hague. And he said, in reality, the system of victim participation does not really work. And it renders the task to provide justice in the sense that the perpetrators are punished much more complex and time consuming and costly. And this is uh, a quote by Judge Van Wingert, and she's a sitting judge at the court, but she also has published actually on what she thinks it wro is wrong with the victim participation regime at the ICC. And I took this from her publication. And she said, it may well be that victims' participation in criminal trials of the kind that are held before the ICC, i.e. trials with massive amounts of victims, cannot be more than symbolic, 
which in turn may be a new cause of secondary victimization. The same risk exists if it appears that reparations too can only be symbolic. And I think while they apply slightly different discursive strategies, I think the underlying argument is the same. Namely that uh, in, in the situation kind of, of, the, of the court, we face massive and complex victimization. And the court's abilities to address this via victim participation reparations will always be very limited. And inevitably, the consequence is symbolic victims' engagement. And this can actually then be more harmful than good for victims. So the judge is actually doing the victims a great favor. And so this leads us to the question, why victims' disengagement? Why are there attempts to, to limit procedural rights of victims in the courtroom? And I think, firstly, there are pragmatic and technical reasons for this. Um, many judges are concerned that in the face of mass victimization, victim participation um, is delaying trial proceedings. And those of you who know a bit more about international criminal trials, they aren't exactly quick affairs in the first place, so I, I, you have to give them that. Um, then there's also the concern that a victim participation undermines the rights of the defendant to a fair and impartial trial. Um, because the ICC's trial model is very much based on the adversarial system, where the prosecution is, is pitted against the, defen the defense and both try to convince the judges of their theories of the case. But this is based on the assumption of the equality of arms. So both parties should be in the same position to make the argument to the judges. And, but if you now introduce the victim into this picture as well, and the assumption is that the victim is usually on the side of the, uh, of the prosecutor, um, then this delicate balance in the courtroom may be disruptive. And I think another reason is um, the bureaucratic mindset. Um, the ICC is ultimately a bureaucracy, and bureaucracies always ask themselves, how can I limit what I have to do? And they usually prefer to do what is easy and conventional for them, which is conducting standard criminal trials as, as much as this is possible in an international setting. And they try to avoid what is difficult and new for them, and that's victim participation reparations. But I think there are also more ideological, more fundamental ideological reasons here. And, um, and this is that the ICC is very much a status quo institution. And what I mean by that is that the ICC was set up by states, the Rome Statute was set up, uh, was written by states, and many of the states, especially common law countries, especially the United States, they were opposed, they were not very happy with introducing victims' rights to participation reparation. And, um, and it's, I think in the literature there is now consensus that it was mainly due to the pressure of NGOs and the support of um, some like-minded states, which often happen to be civil law countries, that these victims' provisions on participation reparations actually made it into the Rome Statute when it was negotiated in 1998. Um, but, but the thing is here that... Um, mm -hmm. I, um, uh, so, but the thing is that these provisions, they were deliberately framed weakly, uh, so in order to reach compromise. And it was left to the judges to work out how these vague formulations would work in reality. But the judges, of course, um, are also elected by states. And if you look at, uh, at their CVs, you will find surprising things. Some of them don't have a law degree. <laughs> um, but what is, I think, most uh, more relevant here is um, 
that most of them made their careers usually in their respective states. So some of them were diplomats, other worked in the Ministry of Justice. So it's no, it's no accident why these people ended up there. And um, and I think um, and I think it's fair to say that most of the people most of these people have internalized state interests. I mean, these are not the type of people who are usually keen on on challenging their their founders and and the founders of the court. And at the moment, even less so because even those states that used to be supportive of the victims' principles, even those states have with with time become much more much more critical of the regime. Especially because they realize it's actually very expensive, and in a time of uh, crisis, no one is keen on spending money. Um, but this leads me to the question: um, this leads me to the question of whether these, this, the whole victims' regime was designed to fail. And this is a, so it's a failure now. It was deliberately framed vaguely. Was it all just a big trick? And this is an argument which was, which was made by one of the legal advisors to the chamber who I interviewed at the court, and he also played a big role during the Rome negotiations. And he said, all the hopes of Rome are failures, but those who were against the victims did not want to be too clear. Don't be too clear, and then we can delete that in a few years, demonstrating that it does not work. Of course, with the usual hypocrisy, you make everything complex, so that it does not work, in order to prove that it does not work, in order to take it out. And, and this is also an argument, argument which, in a sense, redress, which is kind of the main NGOs which has been pushed for victims' rights at the, at the court. It's an argument they have also been making that th there's a certain sense of design to, be fa to fail. But I think this, this argument overestimates the power of the designer to control the interpretation and implementation of justice for victims over many, many years, even if you put the right people in place. And in fact, the ICC's victims rights regime, it's still up and running. It has often taken on unexpected forms and it has found unlikely advocates, but it's, it, it's, still, it's still there. And, and despite attempts to, to kick it out of the courtroom, justice for victims has often made it back into the, court, made it back into the court's process through the back door. And I want to illustrate this a bit, a bit more. Um, because while the judges have, um, have tried to curtail victim participation in the courtroom, they have actually failed to develop a common vision and a common practice of justice for victims at the court. And uh, so basically what happens is that every chamber devises its own model, its own regime of victim participation. And this has caused a lot of confusion, both within the court but also outside of the court. But more importantly for this particular paper, it has, it has left the justice vacuum, where no one really said what justice for victims means. It has never been defined, and the judges have not developed this common vision. And what happens is that the different people at the court fill this with their own ideas or own meaning. And the consequence is that while you have an overall trend of victims' disengagement, you also always have individuals who pick up on the idea, who make it part of their working procedures. And in a very young institution, what individuals do matters. Um, so I think this is important to keep in mind. It's not, e uh, e even among the judges, I mean, by no means, even among the judges, you find actually very, um, some strong supporters of, of victims' rights and participation reparations. And even those judges who are adamant that victims have no place in the courtroom, 
even those judges have never really tried to completely rid the court's process um, of victims. And, and I think the, the reason for that is that you can't, you can't really frame the court's raison d'etre around we're doing justice for victims and then just completely shut them out. So there are also limits to, to hypocrisy. So I think what has happened in practice is that the judges have tried to find some accommodation between their procedural preferences of how they would like to, things to operate in the courtroom and, um, and more substantial ideas of what justice for victims means and what it requires. So they, they try to give a bit. And what they have usually done, I argue, is uh, that's this phenomenon of justice for victims through the back door, which I want to explain a bit further. What they have done is they have tried to recycle or outsource justice for, uh, justice for victims from the courtroom to the more non-judicial and field-based processes. So this is um, everything which happens in the field, outreach, reparations, assistance. And I, and I want to give you two examples of this. Uh, and one is, uh, we already discussed um, the Lubanga case and uh, the role of the victims of child soldiers. And actually, the registry asked the, the chamber of whether the, the, the victims of child soldiers whether they could qualify as indirect victims for purposes of victim participation. Because indirect victims also have participation rights. And the chamber said no. Uh, the direct victims are the child soldiers, and the indirect victims are those who suffered because of the suffering of the child soldiers. So for example, the parents or people who tried to, to help there, but not those who have been victimized by the child soldiers. But obviously this flies in the face of what most of us would think, hmm, it's, it's, it's quite awkward, right? So what the registry has tried to do is, um, when it came to the reparation proceedings, they have tried to make the argument that, the, that these excluded victims, and they're also referred to as excluded victims in the, in, the, in the documentation, they have argued that it may be possible that these excluded victims may be able to benefit from collective reparations which are administered by the Trust Fund for Victims. And this is a more non-judicial process, so it's more administrative. The trust, because Lubanga is also indigenous, so the Trust Fund will use voluntary contributions by states to, to do these type of collective reparations. So I think there you can see an attempt to, in a sense, negotiate procedural ideas of justice with more substantial ideas of what we think is fair in this context. And I think another example of justice for victims through the back door is trial chamber five's decision on victim participation in the Kenyan cases, which was made on the 3rd of October 2012. And many, many commentators, many legal commentators see this as a, as a big setback for victim participation, mainly because it makes victim participation much more collective. And that's um, a comment by James Gondi. Um, he said, this is the least victim-friendly decision that the ICC chambers have ever issued. The decision pretty much railroads progressive victims' jurisprudence set up by the Bamba and Katanga trial chambers and aims to restrict the procedural rights of victims at trial, leaving them even more disenfranchised than before. But I think what has often been ignored is that while the, the, the decision at the same time also required the victim's lawyer to be based in the field with a team of assistants. And when I came to Kenya um, to observe the work of the victim's lawyers, uh, one of the field assistants told me that they have done twice as many missions since the, since the chamber 
make this decision, which is seen as a big setback. And so I think what has happened is that the judges, while they have, while they sort of curtailed victim participation in the courtroom, they try to give a bit in the field so that the court's field staff and the victim's lawyers have a bit more room um, in order to have a bit more room to engage with victims on the ground. Uh, so I think the consequence is that while victims have lost procedural rights in the courtroom, they have gained a bit more substantive representation in the field. And I say a bit more deliberately because I, I definitely don't want to idealize uh, the type of things they're doing there, but I think it has become, um, it has become more, more involving than it was before. And this brings me to another point, which is um, that the judge's attempt to control justice for victims by recycling it away from the courtroom, by putting it into the field and the non-traditional processes, this can have unintended consequences. And this, this speaks to the, the title of the paper, Ideas Die Hard. Once you have put an idea out there in an institutional context, it's actually very difficult to fully control. And I will, I will illustrate this again with the example of legal representation of victims, because my impression was, when I was there to observe uh, the work of the victim's lawyer, is that this, the whole victim's representation has become much more political than I think that the judges intended it to be and also would appreciate. So one of the victim's lawyers in Kenya, I think it's fair to say that he has become a bit of a more political figure. He's very engaging. He has put pressure on the Kenyan government to stop discriminating uh, in, the, in the way um, it, it compensates victims. He has, he's on the media a lot, he's, um, he's a lot like, on TV and in radio, and he has also written a letter to the UN Special Rapporteur on IDPs and has also asked the rapporteur to put pressure on the Kenyan government, and he has been lobbying European Union and US representatives in Nairobi, even asking them to impose sanctions on Kenya. So I'm not sure the judges would be that happy with it. And I think one of the problems is that the judges underestimate the importance of the field. Because, I mean, these people, I think it's fair to say that they are the face of the court in the field. And whatever they're doing, for better or worse, will influence the imagery of the court in Kenya. But I think it's something which, is something which people in The Hague may not realize because they see the courtroom as the central forum in which everything happens. And another example of how justice for victims through the back door can have unintended consequences is um, transformative justice. Um, so I explained to you before that the chamber, that the registry advised that it may be possible that the victims of child, so child soldiers, that they can benefit from collective reparations administered by the trust fund. But the trust fund actually has its own ideas how it wants to use its reparation and assistance mandate. And in fact, it has made clear that it wants to use these reparation and assistance to bring transformative justice in the court situation countries. And the trust fund explained this concept of transformative, chamber, uh, transformative justice to the chamber as follows. In the aftermath of war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide, it will often not be appropriate to restore the status quo ante that gave rise to such crimes, in particular because the majority of victims of such crimes will likely have been the powerless and the dispossessed at the time the conflict erupted. So their argument is, because the conventional concept of reparation is restitution, you, you, wanna, you want to try to, as much as possible, you would like to try to put people back to the situation 
which prevailed before the crimes happened. But a trust fund argues here that this is often not appropriate, and we should rather use uh, reparations in order to transform the, the structural conditions in the, in the countries, in the situation countries, which are part of the reason why the crimes happened in the first place. So the trust fund um, further in the submission says, transformative reparations may serve not only as a form of reparative justice, but also as an opportunity to overcome structural conditions of inequality and exclusion in the ICC situation countries. And when I was at the court and interviewed practitioners there, including judges, I asked them what they think of the trust fund's transformative justice ambitions. And as it turned out, most of them have never heard of it, <laughs> even though it's in, the, it's, in the, it's in the documentation. This is part of uh, a legal filing. And when I, explained them to the, when I explained to these people the idea of transformative justice, um, many of them found it quite problematic that the trust fund is trying to do that. And, and they found it problematic because they felt that it makes the trust fund and therefore also the court a much more political actor in the court situation countries. And this obviously is in, in conflict with the self-portrayal of the court as an apolitical institution. And, um, and while it's really debatable to what extent the trust fund will ever do any transformative justice, I mean, it's, it's one of the kind of concepts where you already get a bit, you know, uh, I do think it kind of influences the way, the type of projects they fund, fund a bit. So I do think that, uh, for example, one of the things, uh, they, this is in the Democratic Republic of Congo, they funded this L'Ecole de la Paix, the peace school implemented by the missionaries d'Afrique, and they see it as a very good example of shifting the mindset of young people and transforming the culture there. So it's a bit of a strange language here, especially if you, if you remember that victim assistance is in a sense a very technical thing and they made it into this uh, transformative justice. Um, and what is interesting I find is that um, many of the courts fields, field by staff and the victims lawyers and the trust fund for victims they justify this more broader engagement on behalf of victims, this broader victims represent, representation. They justify it also with the same idea of complexity of victimhood. So, uh, for example, this is a quote by a legal officer of the Victim Participation Reparation Section. He said, one remedy to the complexity is consistent interaction. This is the only way. What we are trying to do, at least in Kenya, where we have more resources than in other situations, we are trying to do the civic engagement, the civic development, the civic education. So you can see that while the judges uh, use the idea of complex victimhood to water down victims' rights uh, to participation, the field-based staff and the victims' lawyer and the trust fund for victims, the more non-judicial parts of the court, use the same idea to say, hey, we have to have more political and more intensive interaction here. And I think what emerges from this analysis is actually an image of a rather divided institution where you have conflicting and even contradictory ideas and practices on justice for victims. And that's a quote by a legal officer at the registry who said, we are one institution, but we are many different voices within one institution with different objectives and different priorities. And this brings me back to my, um, to my model of interaction justice making. And I'm promising I'm going to finish very soon. <laughs> Uh, what is the relationship between justice ideas and practices here? And what I've tried to show in this paper is that once the idea of justice for victims was introduced in the ICC's framework, it gave rise to two dynamics. 
The one, one dynamic is that the judges have tried to adjust, so the, the judges have tried to control the idea by adjusting their practices a bit where it, it doesn't hurt them too much, namely in the kind of non-judicial and field-based processes. But uh, by doing so, they also gave rise to new justice practices, even though this may have not been intended and was often quite unexpected, because you, in a young institution where things are in flux, you can have activist individuals that pick up ideas, that translate them into, into practices, and especially in the field, there's not much oversight of what these people are doing. It's, it's in a sense, the court is quite complex with different, um, very different departments and sections and this and that, so I think there's not much oversight here. Uh, so to conclude this discussion, I tried to, to do three things here. I tried to, to challenge the critical scholarship, um, not to dismiss it, but to nuance it. So the ICC, it's, it's, I, don't, I think it's wrong to think that you have uh, one court using one idea of victimhood, namely innocent victims, to do one thing, namely to expand and legitimate its international justice business. I think the ICC is much more divided, and we have people using ideas of victimhood to, to promote different types of um, institutional interests and ideologies. The second point I tried to make is that ideas, even if they face strong opposition, and justice for victims at the court, it does face strong opposition, they can still influence justice practices, and often in ways that may not have been intended. And I think it's fair to say that uh, there are still ongoing negotiations at the court of what justice for victims means at the ICC and how it can be practiced. And the last point is, uh, I want to, I think it's a bit naive sometimes when you read um, sort of NGO documents, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of kind of talk about the main problem is that the judges and the practitioners at the court, they don't understand. They don't understand the complexity of victimhood. They don't understand that justice for victims is more complex. And I think this is really misleading. I think that many practitioners do understand it, and they use it for their own purposes. And as I try to show you, there are different ways in which ideas of complex victimhood can be used to promote um, institutional, diverse institutional interests and ideologies. Thank you. <laughs>